This is Chapter Thirty Six of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter Thirty Six: The Fiendish Fun of Alp Climbing. We did not oversleep at St. Nicholas. The church bell began to ring at four thirty in the morning, and from the length of time it continued to ring, I judged that it takes the Swiss sinner a good while to get the invitation through his head. Most church bells in the world are of poor quality, and have a harsh and rasping sound which upsets the temper and produces much sin. But the St. Nicholas bell is a good deal the worst one that has been contrived yet, and is peculiarly maddening in its operation. Still, it may have its right and its excuse to exist, for the community is poor, and not every citizen can afford a clock, perhaps. But there cannot be any excuse for our church bells at home, for there is no family in America without a clock, and consequently there is no fair pretext for the usual Sunday medley of dreadful sounds that issues from our steeples. There is much more profanity in America on Sunday than in all the other six days of the week put together, and it is of a more bitter and malignant character than the weekday profanity, too. It is produced by the cracked-pot clangor of the cheap church bells. We build our churches almost without regard to cost. We rear an edifice which is an adornment to the town, and we gild it, and fresco it, and mortgage it, and do everything we can think of to perfect it, and then spoil it all by putting a bell on it which afflicts everybody who hears it, giving some the headache, others St. Vitus's dance, and the rest the blind staggers. An American village, at ten o'clock on a summer Sunday, is the quietest and peacefulest and holiest thing in nature, but it is a pretty different thing half an hour later. Mr. Poe's poem of the bells stands incomplete to this day, but it is well enough that it is so, for the public reciter or reader who goes around trying to imitate the sounds of the various sorts of bells with his voice would find himself up a stump when he got to the church bell, as Joseph Addison would say. The church is always trying to get other people to reform. It might not be a bad idea to reform itself a little by way of example. It is still clinging to one or two things which were useful once, but which are not useful now, neither are they ornamental. One is the bell-ringing to remind a clock-caked town that it is church-time, and another is the reading from the pulpit of a tedious list of notices, which everybody who is interested has already read in the newspaper. The clergyman even reads the hymn through, a relic of an ancient time when hymn-books are scarce and costly. But everybody has a hymn-book now, and so the public reading is no longer necessary. It is not merely unnecessary, it is generally painful for the average clergyman could not fire into his congregation with a shotgun and hit a worse reader than himself, unless the weapon scattered shamefully. I am not meaning to be flippant and irreverent, I am only meaning to be truthful. The average clergyman, in all countries and of all denominations, is a very bad reader. One would think he would at least learn how to read the Lord's Prayer by and by, but it is not so. He races through it, as if he thought the quicker he got it in, the sooner it would be answered. A person who does not appreciate the exceeding value of pauses, and does not know how to measure their duration judiciously, cannot render the grand simplicity and dignity of a composition like that effectively. 
we took a tolerably early breakfast, and tramped off toward Zermatt, through the reeking lanes of the village, glad to get away from that bell. By and by, we had a fine spectacle on our right. It was the wall-like butt-end of a huge glacier, which looked down on us from an alpine height which was well up in the blue sky. It was an astonishing amount of ice to be compacted together in one mass. We ciphered upon it, and decided that it was not less than several hundred feet from the base of the wall of solid ice to the top of it. Harris believed it was really twice that. We judged that if St. Paul's, St. Peter's, the Great Pyramid, the Strasbourg Cathedral, and the Capitol in Washington were clustered against that wall, a man sitting on its upper edge could not hang his hat on the top of any one of them without reaching down three or four hundred feet, a thing which, of course, no man could do. To me, that mighty glacier was very beautiful. I did not imagine that anybody could find fault with it, but I was mistaken. Harris had been snarling for several days. He was a rabid Protestant, and he was always saying, "'In the Protestant cantons, you never see such poverty and dirt and squalor as you do in this Catholic one. You never see the lanes and alleys flowing with foulness. You never see such wretched little sties of houses. You never see an inverted tin turnip on top of the church for a dome. And as for a church bell, why, you never hear a church bell at all.' All this morning he had been finding fault straight along. First it was with the mud. He said, "'It ain't muddy in a Protestant canton when it rains.' Then it was with the dogs. They don't have those lop-eared dogs in a Protestant canton. Then it was with the roads. They don't leave the roads to make themselves in a Protestant canton. The people make them, and they make a road that is a road, too. Next it was the goats. You never see a goat shedding tears in a Protestant canton. A goat there is one of the cheerfulest objects in nature. Next it was the chamois. You never see a Protestant chamois act like one of these. They take a bite or two and go, but these fellows camp with you and stay. Then it was the guide-boards. In a Protestant canton you couldn't get lost if you wanted to, but you never see a guide-board in a Catholic canton. Next, you never see any flower-boxes in the windows here, never anything but now and then a cat, a torpid one, but you take a Protestant canton, windows perfectly lovely with flowers, and as for cats, there's just acres of them. These folks in this canton leave a road to make itself, and then fine you three francs if you trot over it, as if a horse could trot over such a sarcasm of a road. Next, about the goiter. They talk about goiter. <laughs> I haven't seen a goiter in this whole canton that I couldn't put in a hat. He had growled at everything, but I judged it would puzzle him to find anything the matter with this majestic glacier. I intimated as much, but he was ready, and said with a surly discontent, "'You ought to see them in the Protestant cantons.' This irritated me, but I concealed the feeling, and asked, "'What is the matter with this one?' "'Matter? Why, it ain't in any kind of condition. They never take any care of a glacier here. The moraine has been spilling gravel around it, and got it all dirty.' "'Why, man, they can't help that.' "'They?' You're right. That is, they won't. They could if they wanted to. You never see a speck of dirt on a Protestant glacier. Look at the Rhone glacier. It is fifteen miles long and seven hundred feet thick. Hey, if this was a Protestant glacier, you wouldn't see it looking like this. 
I can tell you. That is nonsense. What would they do with it? They would whitewash it. They always do. I did not believe a word of this, but rather than have trouble, I let it go, for it is a waste of breath to argue with a bigot. I even doubted if the Rhone glacier was in a Protestant canton, but I did not know, so I could not make anything by contradicting a man who would probably put me down at once with manufactured evidence. About nine miles from St. Nicholas we crossed a bridge over the raging torrent of the Visp, and came to a log strip of flimsy fencing which was pretending to secure people from tumbling over a perpendicular wall forty feet high and into the river. Three children were approaching. One of them, a little girl, about eight years old, was running. When pretty close to us she stumbled and fell, and her feet shot under the rail of the fence, and for a moment projected over the stream. It gave us a sharp shock, for we thought she was gone, sure, for the ground slanted steeply, and to save herself seemed a sheer impossibility but she managed to scramble up and ran by us laughing. We went forward and examined the place and saw the long tracks which her feet had made in the dirt when they darted over the verge. If she had finished her trip, she would have struck some big rocks in the edge of the water, and then the torrent would have snatched her downstream among the half-covered boulders, and she would have been pounded to pulp in two minutes. We had come exceedingly near witnessing her death." And now Harris's contrary nature and inborn selfishness were strikingly manifested. He has no spirit of self-denial. He began straight off and continued for an hour to express his gratitude that the child was not destroyed. I never saw such a man. That was the kind of person he was. Just so he was gratified, he never cared anything about anybody else. I had noticed that trait in him over and over again. Often, of course, it was mere heedlessness, mere want of reflection. Doubtless this may have been the case in most instances, but it was not the less hard to bar on that account, and, after all, its bottom, its groundwork, was selfishness. There is no avoiding that conclusion. In the instance under consideration, I did think the indecency of running on in that way might occur to him but no, the child was saved, and he was glad, uh, that was sufficient. He cared not a straw for my feelings, or my loss of such a literary plum, snatched from my very mouth at the instant it was ready to drop into it. His selfishness was sufficient to place his own gratification in being spared suffering, clear before all concern for me, his friend. Apparently he did not once reflect upon the valuable details, which would have fallen like a windfall to me, fishing the child out, witnessing the surprise of the family, and the stir the thing would have made among the peasants, then a Swiss funeral, then the roadside monument, to be paid for by us and have our names mentioned in it. And we should have gone into Baedeker and been immortal. I was silent. I was too much hurt to complain. If he could act so, and be so heedless and so frivolous at such a time, and actually seem to glory in it, after all I had done for him, I would have cut my hand off before I would let him see that I was wounded. We were approaching Zermatt. Consequently, we were approaching the renowned Matterhorn. A month before, this mountain had been only a name to us. But latterly, we had been moving through a steadily thickening double row of pictures of it, done in oil, water, chromo, wood, steel, copper, crayon, and photography, 
and so it had at length become a shape to us, and a very distinct, decided, and familiar one, too. We were expecting to recognize that mountain whenever or wherever we should run across it. We were not deceived. The monarch was far away when we first saw him, but there was no such thing as mistaking him. He has the rare peculiarity of standing by himself. He is peculiarly steep, too, and is also most oddly shaped. He towers into the sky like a colossal wedge, with the upper third of its blade bent a little to the left. The broad base of this monster wedge is planted upon a grand glacier-paved alpine platform whose elevation is ten thousand feet above sea level. As the wedge itself is some five thousand feet high, it follows that its apex is about fifteen thousand feet above sea level. So the whole bulk of this stately piece of rock, this sky-cleaving monolith, is above the line of eternal snow. Yet, while all its giant neighbors have the look of being built of solid snow from their waists up, the Matterhorn stands black and naked and forbidding the year round, or merely powdered or streaked with white in places, for its sides are so steep that the snow cannot stay there. Its strange form, its august isolation, and its majestic unkinship with its own kind make it, so to speak, the Napoleon of the mountain world. Grand, gloomy, and peculiar is a phrase which fits it as aptly as it fitted the great captain. Think of a monument a mile high standing on a pedestal of two miles high. This is what the Matterhorn is, a monument. Its office, henceforth, for all time, will be to watch and ward over the secret resting-place of the young Lord Douglas, who, in 1865, was precipitated from the summit over a precipice four thousand feet high, and never seen again. No man ever had such a monument as this before. The most imposing of the world's other monuments are but atoms compared to it. And they will perish, and their places will pass from memory. But this will remain." Footnote number one. The accident which cost Lord Douglas his life, see chapter 12, also cost the lives of three other men. These three fell four-fifths of a mile, and their bodies were afterward found, lying side by side upon a glacier, whence they were borne to Zermatt, and buried in the churchyard. The remains of Lord Douglas have never been found. The secret of his sepulture, like that of Moses, must remain a mystery always. A walk from St. Nicholas to Zermatt is a wonderful experience. Nature is built on a stupendous plan in that region. One marches continually between walls that are piled into the skies, with their upper heights broken into a confusion of sublime shapes that gleam white and cold against the background of blue. And here and there one sees a big glacier displaying its grandeurs on the top of a precipice, or a graceful cascade leaping and flashing down the green declivities. There is nothing tame or cheap or trivial. It is all magnificent. That short valley is a picture-gallery of a notable kind, for it contains no mediocrities. From end to end the Creator has hung it with his masterpieces. We made Zermatt at three in the afternoon, nine hours out from St. Nicholas. Distance, by guidebook, twelve miles. By pedometer, seventy-two. We were in the heart and home of the mountain-climbers now, as all visible things testified. The snow-peaks did not hold themselves aloof, in an aristocratic reserve. 
they nestled close around in a friendly sociable way guides with the ropes and axes and other implements of their fearful calling slung about their persons roosted in a long line upon a stone wall in front of the hotel and waited for customers sunburnt climbers in mountaineering costume and followed by their guides and porters arrived from time to time from breakneck expeditions among the peaks and glaciers of the high alps male and female tourists on mules filed by in a continuous procession hotelward bound from wild adventures which would grow in grandeur every time they were described at the english or american fireside and at last outgrow the possible itself we were not dreaming this was not a make-believe home of the alp-climber created by our heated imaginations no for here was mr girdlestone himself the famous englishman who hunts his way to the most formidable alpine summits without a guide i was not equal to imagining a girdlestone it was all i could do to even realize him while looking straight at him at short range i would rather face whole hyde parks of artillery than the ghastly forms of death which he has faced among the peaks and precipices of the mountains there is probably no pleasure equal to the pleasure of climbing a dangerous alp but it is a pleasure which is confined strictly to people who can find pleasure in it i have not jumped to this conclusion i have travelled to it per gravel train so to speak i have thought the thing all out and am quite sure i am right a born climber's appetite for climbing is hard to satisfy when it comes upon him he is like a starving man with a feast before him he may have other business on hand but it must wait mr girdlestone had had his usual summer holiday in the alps and had spent it in his usual way hunting for unique chances to break his neck his vacation was over and his luggage packed for england but all of a sudden a hunger had come upon him to climb the tremendous weisshorn once more for he had heard of a new and utterly impossible route up it his baggage was unpacked at once and now he and a friend laden with knapsacks ice-picks coils of rope and canteens of milk were just setting out they would spend the night high up among the snows somewhere and get up at two in the morning and finish the enterprise i had a strong desire to go with them but forced it down a feat which mr girdlestone with all his fortitude could not do even ladies catch the climbing mania and are unable to throw it off a famous climber of that sex had attempted the weisshorn a few days before our arrival and she and her guides had lost their way in a snowstorm high up among the peaks and glaciers and had been forced to wander around a good while before they could find a way down when this lady reached the bottom she had been on her feet twenty-three hours our guides hired on the gemmi were already at zermatt when we reached there so there was nothing to interfere with our getting up an adventure whenever we should choose the time and the object i resolved to devote my first evening in zermatt to studying up the subject of alpine climbing by way of preparation i read several books and here are some of the things i found out one's shoes must be strong and heavy and have pointed hobnails in them the alpenstock must be of the best wood for if it should break loss of life might be the result one should carry an axe to cut steps in the ice with on the great heights there must be a ladder for there are steep bits of rock which can be surmounted with this instrument or this utensil which could not be surmounted without it such an obstruction has compelled the tourist to waste hours hunting another route when a ladder would have saved him all trouble 
one must have from one hundred and fifty to five hundred feet of strong rope to be used in lowering the party down steep declivities which are too steep and smooth to be traversed in any other way one must have a steel hook on another rope a very useful thing for when one is ascending and comes to a low bluff which is yet too high for the ladder he swings this rope aloft like a lasso the hook catches at the top of the bluff and then the tourist climbs the rope hand over hand being always particular to try and forget that if the hook gives way he will never stop falling till he arrives in some part of switzerland where they are not expecting him another important thing there must be a rope to tie the whole party together with so that if one falls from a mountain or down a bottomless chasm in a glacier the others may brace back on the rope and save him one must have a silk veil to protect his face from snow sleet hail and gale and colored goggles to protect his eyes from that dangerous enemy snow blindness finally there must be some porters to carry provisions wine and scientific instruments and also blanket bags for the party to sleep in i closed my readings with a fearful adventure which mr whimper once had on the matterhorn when he was prowling around alone five thousand feet above the town of Breil. he was edging his way gingerly around the corner of a precipice where the upper edge of a sharp declivity of ice-glazed snow joined it this declivity swept down a couple of hundred feet into a gully which curved around and ended at a precipice eight hundred feet high overlooking a glacier his foot slipped and he fell he says my knapsack brought my head down first and i pitched into some rocks about a dozen feet below they caught something and tumbled me off the edge head over heels into the gully the baton was dashed from my hands and i whirled downward in a series of bounds each longer than the last now over ice now into rocks striking my head four or five times each time with increased force the last bound sent me spinning through the air in a leap of fifty or sixty feet from one side of the gully to the other and i struck the rocks luckily with the whole of my left side they caught my clothes for a moment and i fell back to the snow with motion arrested my head fortunately came the right side up and a few frantic catches brought me to a halt in the neck of the gully and on the verge of the precipice baton hat and veil skimmed by and disappeared and the crash of the rocks which i had started as they fell on to the glacier told how narrow had been the escape from utter destruction as it was i fell nearly two hundred feet in seven or eight bounds ten feet more would have taken me in one gigantic leap of eight hundred feet on to the glacier below the situation was sufficiently serious the rocks could not be let go for a moment and the blood was spurting out of more than twenty cuts the most serious ones were in the head and i vainly tried to close them with one hand while holding on with the other it was useless the blood gushed out in blinding jets at each pulsation at last in a moment of inspiration i kicked out a big lump of snow and stuck it as plaster on my head the idea was a happy one and the flow of blood diminished then scrambling up i got not a moment too soon to a place of safety and fainted away the sun was setting when consciousness returned and it was pitch dark before the great staircase was descended but by a combination of luck and care the whole four thousand seven hundred feet of descent to Breil 
was accomplished without a slip or once missing the way. His wounds kept him abed some days. Then he got up and climbed that mountain again. That is the way with a true Alp climber. The more fun he has, the more he wants. End of chapter 36